0: good morning friends as you know God reveals himself to us um, in the scriptures we know about God because we have a copy of the Bible certainly God reveals himself to us in nature We, we learn something of God in nature but nothing salvific in nature We need God's word to learn sufficiently about him to experience salvation. And so God has in fact revealed himself to us in a book. As Martin Luther said, God has communicated to us through his word and his word is full of pictures. Pictures about his character, pictures about his plan of salvation, pictures about elements of our redemption. Pictures are all over scriptures. And you don't need a children's picture Bible to see the pictures. They're all over your copy of scripture in your lap right now. Uh, I, I've described for you many of the pictures, especially in the Old Testament that reveals God's plan of salvation. For example, we've looked at the Old Testament sacrifices and what they picture. The Old Testament stories, the Old Testament characters All that have uh, a direction that they're pointing, they're pictures of God's character, of of God's plan and purposes. Today we're gonna look at a rare New Testament picture that demonstrates a very important doctrine. So if you have your Bible, I want you to turn with me to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, verses 6 through 15. Now you just heard read. From the Gospel of Matthew, this same story, this is a parallel passage, but found in Mark, the the book that we're studying. Mark chapter 15, verses 6 through 15, goes like this. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked, and among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man named Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests and the, and the scribes delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd and, and have, to have him released for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. Having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. This is a picture. This is a story about God and his nature, about God and his plan of salvation. And so we're going to look at this picture that shows us one of the most important and well supported doctrines in the New Testament the doctrine of substitution the doctrine of substitution let's look at this beginning with the picture that I just read for you each year as you just heard me read it was the custom for the governor to grant amnesty to one sentenced criminal of the people's choice this was done of course to cultivate goodwill between Rome and the people whose land they occupied. In our story today, Pilate thought that the crowd would certainly choose Jesus. I mean, uh, if you had the choice between Jesus and Barabbas, who would you choose? We'd also, of course, Jesus, right? But that didn't happen. And so he thought that they would choose Jesus and that would solve his dilemma of having to condemn to death an innocent man. The, The other potential release option was a notorious criminal who was in prison for murder and insurrection, rebellion. I'm s- certain that Pilate was probably stunned when he heard them choose Barabbas over Jesus, the, the king of the Jews, the one you call Christ. Most scholars believe that the middle cross on which Jesus died on that day was actually reserved for Barabbas. Ironically, the name Barabbas, Bar Abbas. Means son of a father, son of a father. Bar Abbas, Bar Jonah, son of Jonah, Bar Abbas, son of father. Barabbas was a judged condemned criminal who was the son of a human father, and he was being offered to the people in place of the sinless son of the divine father. There's the picture. There's the substitution. Because Pilate expected the Jewish crowd to overwhelmingly choose Jesus, you can imagine his shock when he heard all of them say, Barabbas, crucify Jesus, free Barabbas. And so Jesus took Barabbas' place by divine plan, yes, plan. It was planned that this would happen. According to Acts 2.23, we read that according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified Jesus. It was a definite plan in the foreknowledge of God. So a critical element in your theological growth is to understand that God planned the events of human history, including all the things leading up to the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. God planned the substitution of Jesus for Barabbas. This was in God's foreknowledge and specific plan. Now let's look at the second point here, the plan of redemption. Let's, let's exercise this for a bit and think about how God may have planned all things leading up to this particular occasion that we read of here in Mark 15 and in Matthew 27. Now as we try to think about the eternal plan of redemption, which is challenging, I admit, it's important that we don't think about God's plan as we might think about how we make summer vacation plans, for example. You sit down with your wife at the coffee table and you say, where do you wanna go, what do you wanna do, when's a good time to leave, when's a good time to get back, how much money do we have to spend, Etc. And we go back and forth and decide what our plans will be. That didn't happen in the eternal plan of redemption. God wasn't sitting around in eternity past with the Father, Son, and the Spirit saying, what do you guys think would be a good idea? And well, no, that wouldn't work because of this, and we don't have the resources to do that. And no, no, we have to remember that God is infinitely wise, infinitely smart. There's no dialoguing through the options to get to the point of best idea, He's infinite in wisdom, and so He has always had the best and perfect way to accomplish His purposes. There's no planning, there's no retreat. It was an eternal plan of God that went back as far as God did or has or is, however you want to describe it. So this is important to keep in mind. His eternal plan of redemption has always been. We use the word plan to help us as humans understand the workings of God. So the Bible gives us insight into this eternal plan and the things that we discover about the plan are magnificent and things, of course, that we cannot cover in one sermon. Uh, But nevertheless, I have prayed that the Holy Spirit would reveal to you some of the magnificence of this plan of redemption. For example, we learn that the eternal plan of God is actually a decree or a purpose of God revealed to mankind. It's realized and set forth in Jesus Christ, but it's a decree that God makes concerning what will transpire. Listen to Ephesians 1, 9 through 11. By the way, I, I, I make these uh, quotes or I, I read these scriptures uh, so that you can have reference to what I'm saying, so that you can go back yourself and look into these things and, and maybe highlight some of these verses in your own copy of the Bible. Ephesians 1, 9 through 11, speaking of the eternal plan of God. Making known to us, that is, those of us who are trusting Christ Jesus, the mystery of his will. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. He accomplished this person through the second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ. In him to unite all, let me start back, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, things on earth, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Everything that God has planned in eternity past, he accomplishes through the second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ in time. Ephesians 3:11 says it like this. This that is the plan of God was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. It all takes place through the person of Jesus Christ. How are you saved through Jesus Christ? What are you saved for? For the glory of Jesus Christ and so forth. It's realized, it's it's purposed in and through Jesus Christ our savior. The Old Testament speaks of this plan as well. You're familiar with these verses. You may not have pinned the concept of plan on them, but I'm asking you to do that. Isaiah 53, 11. This is a prophecy concerning the coming Christ. Out of the anguish of his soul, whose soul? Christ's soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted as righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So this speaks of this idea of substitutionary atonement. He will bear their iniquities. He, Christ, the one who this plan is realized through, will bear their, ours, ours us sinners, iniquities. So it's important to see that God did not decree that salvation would be accomplished um, sim- simply by or merely by a sovereign choice. You, some think that God could say, I, I decree that all sins will be forgiven. All slates will be wiped clean. That's not how it happened. No. The triune God's eternal plan decreed that man's salvation would be accomplished through the redemptive work of God the Son, and the saving benefits of that work would be applied to the believer by the Holy Spirit. Now, uh, I'm sorry to say this, but I see glazed looks on people's faces um, from time to time in church, and today is a perfect opportunity to give me one of those glazed looks, (laughs) all right? I'll understand it, but we are discussing in this sermon series the theology of the cross, right? And theology requires us to study God who is infinite. And how do you expect to talk about infinite things or an infinite God without some attempts at, at thinking. And so I, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to encourage you this morning to think about these things in a way that, that, that encourages your heart and reveals something to you about God in this theology, this study of God. So to back up a hair, God just doesn't decree that your sins will be forgiven. He actually does the work to forgive your sins he had to do something to accomplish the forgiveness of sin and i'll get to why that's important here in a minute the plan was that god the son would take on human flesh with all of its weaknesses except sin and secure for his people the righteousness forgiveness and cleansing that we could never obtain ourselves you and i can't pull this off and so god accomplishes his purposes accomplishes plans Through the God-man, Jesus Christ, all right, God's Son would live as a human in perfect obedience to God the Father and then die on the cross as a substitutionary sacrifice, Him for us, us for Him, Jesus for Barabbas, to atone for the sins of those whom the Father had chosen, all right? The redemption of God's people would be accomplished by the miraculous incarnation, Jesus' vicarious life, his substitutionary death, and his glorious resurrection. All which would be credited to the account of anyone who would put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Does this sound good to you? Forgiveness of sin, resurrection from the dead, eternal glory and bliss? Then you must embrace what God is offering to you in Jesus Christ so that. His work can be given to you. He could be your substitute on Calvary. That has to happen. Or you will never experience these things that I'm describing. After all this redemptive work, God the Son would be rewarded, of course. And what is God the Son's reward? How is Jesus rewarded for the work of redemption? You ever thought about that? And the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us that the nations would be his heritage, So the nations will be his reward, according to Psalm 2, verses 7 and 8. Isaiah 53 and John 17 speak of the Son's reward as actually people. People, you and I who have embraced him, will be his reward throughout eternity. So the promise of Philippians 2, 9 and 10, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, that Jesus will be highly exalted, is the reward that the Father gives to the Son for his obedience to the plan. All right. There will be a people group, including us, who will worship and praise Jesus the Son throughout eternity. That's his reward. The Bible speaks of that clearly. Now let's look at the cause of the atonement. You think, man, we're flying. Well, it slows down here in a second. Okay. And I think this is where it's going to slow down a bit. The cause of the atonement. How is God going to accomplish all this? How is he going to pay for your sin? How is he going to grant you righteousness and me? All these things. The answer is substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary atonement. Which describes the work of the Son of God to die in the place of sinners to assuage, to pacify the wrath of God. So instead of exercising his wrath on you, And me, who deserve it, God exercises his wrath on someone else who doesn't deserve it. Substitutionary atonement. So this doctrine, substitutionary atonement, is distasteful to most unbelievers and especially to the critics of this doctrine. Why would God, they ask, devise a plan that included taking out his wrath on his own son. Where's the wisdom in that? Where's the love in that, they would ask. One critic of this doctrine called the doctrine of substitutionary atonement divine child abuse. Critics also believe that this paints a picture of God who is inherently angry towards his creation, his people, you and me, humans, and is only won over... God is only won over reluctantly after the torturous and sacrificial death of his son. But those of us who know scripture realize this is backwards thinking, don't we? Yeah. Let me explain to you how it's backwards. The, the, The doctrine may sound distasteful, certainly, if you misunderstand it or if you don't go below the surface. But as you dig into this doctrine of substitutionary atonement, it becomes sweet to the taste and beautiful to the eye. The purpose of substitutionary atonement is in fact to assuage or to pacify God's wrath towards sin and sinner who have rebelled against his divine authority and governance. But how and why was the wrath of God to be dealt with? How and why was God's wrath to be dealt with? How could mankind assuage an angry God? We've angered God in our sin. Right? As a race, as individuals, God is angry with sin. The Bible's not unclear about that. Our Bibles use the word propitiate. Right? Listen to this word used in 1 John 4.10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word's propitiation means satisfaction. God sent his son to be the satisfaction for your sin and mine, the satisfaction that assuages, that pacifies his wrath. Here's an interesting insight, and we're getting into the weeds here, and so if you take notes, it might be helpful to kind of keep your thoughts straight. The Greek word hilasterion, hilasterion is where we get our word propitiation. Where the word propitiation come from? The Greek word hilasterion. Um, but it's actually translated in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. That word hilasterion is translated, listen, mercy seat. <laughs> Think about this with me for a second. <laughs> We, it's translated propitiation or satisfaction in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament Greek copy, is, it's translated mercy seat for good reason. So, Paul's copy of the Old Testament was the Septuagint, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. That's what, he, that's what he preached from, that's what he studied from. Those were the, the, the manuscripts, the documents that he asked Timothy to bring to him, the Septuagint. And so when he was thinking about this doctrine of substitutionary atonement, he used the word hilasterion, and in his mind came the words mercy seat. Now, let me explain to you why this is important. I think it will help you grasp what is going on in the transaction that took place on Calvary. Paul said that God the Father put forth Jesus as a hilasterion, Mercy seat or propitiation, which demonstrates the horror and wonder of the mercy of God in Christ. The horror is God's wrath against sin. That's horrific to consider. We've looked at that numerous times in Mark 14 over what Jesus endured on the cross, haven't we? Yes. The horror is God's wrath against sin. The wonder, which is part of the equation, is God's love that provides mercy in the sacrifice of his son, hence mercy seat. Let's look at these separately. The love of God, that is, the wonder of God's love that he provides in the mercy in the sacrifice of his son. This is critical. So please follow me closely. The Father does not love us, his people, because Jesus died for us. No. Now hear me, hear me. The Father does not love us, his people, because Jesus died for us. Jesus died for us, his people, precisely because the Father loves us. That's why the critics have this whole doctrine backwards. They think it's the opposite. They think God had to sacrifice his son in order to create some kind of love for this group of people that don't deserve it. No. He loved us so much, he always has, so he sent his son to accomplish our salvation. John Stott wrote this in the Cross of Christ, the book The Cross of Christ. It cannot be emphasized too strongly that God's love is the source, not the consequence, of the atonement. God does not love us because Christ died for us, Christ died for us because, because God loved us. If it is God's wrath which needed to be propitiated, it is God's love which did the propitiating. end quote. John 3:16 explains this to us, if we think of it in these terms, "For God so loved the world, God so loved the world that He did what He sent His Son. God proved his love for the world by sending his son. 1 John 4, 9 through 10 also helps us understand this. I read it earlier. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. The propitiation was a result of God's love. God's love came first. Which is why he sent Jesus. He loved us so much that he sent his son. The love of God is the cause and source of Christ's atonement. Now I'm, I'm, I'm sharing all this with you to help you see this substitutionary atonement that we see in the picture of Barabbas, okay? The second part of this equation, besides the horror is God's wrath against sin, the wonder is God's love. We just covered God's love. Let's look at the horror in God's justice, okay? God's justice is not a friendly topic, is it? If God's love demonstrates the wonder of God's mercy, then it's God's justice that demonstrates the horror of God's wrath. This cause of atonement is just as important. By the way, the justice of God is just as much a cause of the atonement as the love of God is. So we need to understand that. Regarding our salvation, God's love is critically important, but also God's justice is critically important to understand It's not as frequently discussed in this conversation, but it's a critical component. You may wonder why the justice of God isn't discussed in Scripture also concerning substitutionary atonement. And and I'm saying to you, it is, but in a theological sense, which is not what I'm trying to explain to you. All mankind is guilty of breaking God's law and are justly alienated from God. Do you understand that? Do you believe that? That all mankind is guilty of breaking God's law and deserve his just punishment? If you don't believe that, you wouldn't be here this morning. All right? So I'm assuming that you're believing this. Even though God's love motivates him to save and forgive us, our sin cannot simply be overlooked. can't simply be swept under the rug and say, yeah, oh, it's okay. It's not okay. We're, we've sinned. We rebelled against our Creator. So if God is going to reconcile sinners to himself... Sin must be dealt with, right? How's he going to do that? It it, it, it must be punished. His law and justice must be genuinely satisfied. And his wrath, wrath must be assuaged. Each requirement of law and justice are met in Christ. Jesus fulfilled the law right? This is what Romans 5 tells us. He paid the penalty for sin, 1 Peter 2. He assuaged God's wrath, Hebrews 2. Listen to Romans 3, 25 and 26. Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation or satisfaction by his blood, he satisfied God's wrath by spilling his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, Because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The reason Jesus had to go to the cross and spill his blood and die was to prove that God was just and dealt with sin appropriately. He just didn't sweep it under the rug. He just didn't say, "Ah, that's okay. No. He took out his full wrath on his son in that moment, paying for your sin. So God's wrath is completely, fully, infinitely paid for, assuaged, satisfied at the cross of Calvary. Sin is not ignored, sin is punished. God remains loving and just. The love of God and the justice of God are the cause of the atonement. Now let's look at the nature of the atonement. This is my final point. The nature of the atonement. The first thing we see and must understand about the nature of the atonement is the obedience of Christ. The obedience of Christ. And there are three ways that Christ's obedience accomplished the work of substitutionary atonement. If Christ had not been obedient, our sins would not be atoned for. So let's look at the three ways that Christ's obedience accomplished the work of substitutionary atonement. Number one, obedience to the divine plan of salvation. This plan that came to be in eternity past needed to be fulfilled in time. So Jesus was obedient to the divine plan. He actually came to earth. He actually lived an obedient life. He actually died for the sins. This was part of all part of the plan. Christ's obedience to the divine plan of salvation. Secondly, this obedience qualified him to die for sins. It qualified him to be a substitutionary atonement. You remember the Levitical system, the Old Testament, with all these animals? Could they bring a lame animal Could they bring a blind one? No. The the sacrifice had to be perfect. As Christ had to be perfect. And that perfection comes from his obedience. He perfectly obeyed the law from beginning to end. These sacrifices that were made without blemish were pictures of this one great sacrifice that was yet to come, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 5.8 says this, although he was a son, he learned obedience. Speaking of Jesus, he learned obedience through what was suffered and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So he was never disobedient. He just learned about what it meant to be obedient by fulfilling the commands of God by fulfilling the plan of salvation. In these verses, we see a link between Christ's obedience, which is perfect obedience, and his qualification to be our substitutionary sacrifice, to die in our place. Thirdly, obedience provides or provided righteousness. Christ's obedience provides the necessary righteousness that's required of every single person, including you and me. Jesus had to be perfect because the ones he was substituting himself for were not perfect. We who receive the benefits of this substitutionary atonement are full of sin and unrighteousness. And so he had to be obedient to provide righteousness that we lacked. There's the switch. There's the the substitute Our salvation not only requires our sins to be forgiven, past tense, but also requires us to be holy from this point on. How's that going for you today? Are you holy? You became a Christian when you were 12. How's it been since then? Unholiness. So how is this going to work? How are we going to have a reconciled relationship with a perfectly holy God if we continue to sin even after we're saved. I'm telling you, it's because the righteousness of Jesus Christ was credited to your account in full forever. (laughs) That was good news in case you're wondering. Okay? You were forever righteousness before the eyes of God because of the substitutionary atonement work of Christ. His perfection is now your perfection. All your sins were wiped off, and you were credited his perfect righteousness. Now, when God sees you, he sees the perfection of his son. Not the miserable state we are in, but the perfection that which Christ lived out day in and day out for 33 years. That's why we needed a perfect Savior, an obedient Savior. So Jesus did more than just die for our sins. He lived for our righteousness. Both are required to be saved. I was asked last week, after the sermon about how God, even after the sacrifice of Jesus, can still look on us or fellowship with us because we continue to sin. God is holy, right? He can't can't put up with sin, can't be in the presence of sin, and yet here we are in the presence of God as sinners. How does that work? (laughs) It's a good question. The Bible answers this question, thankfully. Listen to this verse in Jeremiah 31, which speaks of the New Covenant, that thing that we enjoy, the New Covenant. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Now listen, here's how God can fellowship with you, even in your sinful state. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. That's how he does it. (laughs) He wipes it out of his memory. He he puts Christ's perfection before his eyes and wipes your sin, past, present, and future, out of his memory, which is infinitely perfect and eternal. Now, Isaiah 43 clarifies it even further. "I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. God wipes out your transgressions, wipes away your sin for his sake. And I will not remember your sins. That's how he does it. He says, sinner, insert your own name. I'm forgetting about your sin and I'm looking at Christ only. From here on. We might remember our sins. We do remember our sins, especially the the heinous ones. But those of us who are covered by the substitutionary atonement of Jesus, God does not remember our sin. If I were in the crowd, I'd say amen. (laughs) Because I'm a sinner, right? And I know you sinners are all sinners. Now let's look at the next Concept here is we're trying to understand the nature of the atonement. The first is the obedience of our Savior Jesus Christ. The second is Penal substitution awkward-sounding term Penal simply means that Jesus suffered the penalty hence penal the penalty of our sins as a substitute Penal substitution Our sin against God, which causes a separation between us and him, um, and that's the case with all sinful humanity, and it requires a penalty to be paid. Romans 6.23 speaks this, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Okay, so a wage is due payment. Our due payment or penalty for our sin and rebellion against the Creator is death, according to Scripture, which Jesus took for us. He substituted himself instead of us, just like which was pictured with Jesus taking the place of Barabbas on Calvary. Barabbas deserved to die. Jesus took his place. Substitutionary atonement. Okay, there's the picture. If there is going to be any reconciliation with God and any redemption from our captivity to sin, then a penalty must be paid, and it was. It was not or could not be paid in full by us because we are not sinless or perfect, which is required of God, isn't it? But because God is loving and merciful, he provided a perfect Savior in Jesus Christ to be our substitute. And all we have to do to access that glorious benefit is say, Yes, please. Think of all the ways. Think of all the ways that this is pictured in scripture. Starting with the earliest humans, Adam and Eve sinned and God presented a substitute in the animals that were sacrificed to, to create the skins for their covering. Abel's sheep, Isaac's ram, Aaron's entire sacrificial system, and now here Barabbas. Let me read for you some verses from Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs. He carried our sins. He carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. The Bible teaches substitutionary atonement. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Verse 6 All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jump to the New Testament. John 1.29, when Jesus is introduced to the people of Israel by John the Baptist, the next day John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then the entire New Testament is filled with this language and these truths. Here's one of my favorites, 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake... He, that is, God the Father, made him, God the Son, to be sin, who knew no sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. God made Christ take on our sins so that we could take on his righteousness. God imputed to Jesus our sin and imputed to us his righteousness the great exchange. There are four Greek prepositions. Yikes, how long have we have been going here? <laughs> there are four important Greek prepositions and they support this argument, okay? I'll <laughs> leave it at that. If you want to know about it, come talk to me afterwards. <clears throat> so we deserved to die, didn't we? But he laid down his life for us as a ransom price to save his people so that we would go free. So this particular doctrine is the most well supported doctrine in the New Testament. There is no question, it is a divine doctrine. Applications, remember, uh, bad theology has no application. Good theology has application. So here's some application. Seems dirty to try to apply this celestial doctrine to everyday examples. But because good theology has application, I'm gonna do this. But please don't let this sully the glorious reality that I've just explained to you. Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives. Listen, husbands, on Father's Day, husbands, love your wives as or just as the greek word says just as christ loved the church and gave himself up for her there's an application of substitutionary atonement husbands how are you doing giving up your preferences for your wife giving up all things that are your right for the sake and benefit of your spouse, your wife. Galatians two twenty. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh. Listen, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The life I live now, how's that work? The life you live at work. The life you live as a neighbor, the life you live as a spouse, the life you live in the community. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God, and what's the example who gave himself for me? What's what's your life look like? In a similar way that Jesus loves me and gave himself for me, I'm to live my Christian life. I must love those around me who don't deserve it. Quickly, we're going to end with this. Philippians 2. If you feel like turning there with me, uh, you'll be rewarded. Philippians 2, 3 through 8. This is this sacrificial life that I'm describing, that Christ lived for us and died for us. Starting in verse three, Philippians two, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among you. Think like this, Paul said, think like Christ lived. Though he, <coughs> excuse me, who, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, humbled himself, humbled himself, humbled himself to becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And then the final application is verses 9 through 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow. Worship. <laughs> if, if, if a understanding of substitutionary atonement doesn't cause worship, you don't understand substitutionary atonement. Let's pray. Lord, we do stop and worship. Exalt your name, praise your name, glorify your name because of the work that's inseparable from your person. Because you are all these humble, glorious, sacrificial things. You did what you did for us, your people. And we are called to be like you in this world that doesn't deserve you at all, including us. And so we worship you. We we stop and raise our hearts and minds to that um, glorious place of worshiping our God and Savior and our Creator who died in our place. Father, do your work in us through your Spirit because of your Son and for His glory. Amen.